Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriessian. For those of you that are new to the podcast, please do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So, yo, we have another great episode for you all this week. Get to get into the story of this brother, AJ Watson, who has a really amazing past. And uh, his journey is one that um, where, you know, the, the old saying is never judge a book by its cover. AJ's that dude. You can't really put him to any one box. And when you think you got him figured out, you don't. And one of the things I find the most inspiring about his story and about his journey is he's always been committed to a purpose even when he didn't really know what that purpose was, it seemed like he was almost intuitively guided by seeking his purpose. And then once he figured it out, he's always made the tough decision to put himself on the right side where he could maintain his integrity, um, look himself in the mirror. This is, you know, an, an amazing account of a black man who has overcome quite a bit who has also been given quite a bit but sometimes when you're when you're given a lot or what people perceive to be given a lot in your childhood you don't really know what the struggles are like and what the burden is like in trying to find yourself and find your way so I think that this story is really great for a lot of reasons but one of the things that really comes through is AJ's commitment to purpose and his his seeking to find his truth and once he finds it living that truth so let's get into it peace welcome to another episode of bootstraps brother why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody and let them know what you do yeah uh what's up my name is AJ Watson uh I currently serve as the national director for uh, a counseling and mentoring program known as Becoming a Man for an organization called Youth Guidance based out of Chicago, Illinois. Um, and so, you know, that means I'm, you know, doing a couple of things. One is uh, I've been here with the last six years and really is working with our young men, right? Help them as they navigate uh, middle and late adolescence. Uh, we get full-time counselors, put them in schools, uh, and they really work with the young men to go through a set of core values, help them understand just how to navigate this particular point in life. Um, right. And so that's the program. Uh, but my role is really, uh, I, I'm, as a national director, I'm helping to lead our growth and expansion work. So a little of like business development um, in the nonprofit space. So helped us expand to Boston, Massachusetts, Seattle, Washington, L.A., and uh and london england as of late we got a few more cities in the pipeline we're working on even in the midst of this crazy pandemic uh wow that's 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 big work and that's it's it's important work and so help me understand what it's like being an mba working in the nonprofit space yeah that's a that's a great question man you know it's it's been interesting um because when i i mean let me be totally clear like i did not go to business school thinking i was going to end up working in the nonprofit space, right? That was not, <laughs> that was not the intention. Um, <laughs> right. I thought I was going to be in a, 
you know, a consulting gig or, you know, maybe iBanking, uh, maybe moving down the path of corporate finance. But, you know, I, I, you know, I had the experience in business school of, you know, at Ross of Michigan, we do these seven week consulting projects called MAP, right? Multidisciplinary Action Program. And I spent a month and a half on the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. So right there on the Texas-Mexico border. Right. Um, consulting with an education, uh, with a charter, charter network. And so this is rural Latino education. And it was when I walked into the CEO's office, like in the first day or first couple of days, all of a sudden I saw like Jim Collins, good to great posters. I mm. saw Stephen Covey, like Seven Habits stuff. And I'm like, wait, something's not right. Something wasn't at computing. Right. And I was like, why are all these business things I'm familiar with in the business world here in this education space? Right. And over the course of that month and a half, it hit me. I was like, you know what? This is the work I want to do. I want to take my kind of private sector skills and MBA mindset and apply it in a for purpose, right? Rather than for yeah. profit setting. Um, and I just frankly, like I'm originally from Detroit. Um, grew up in Michigan and Minnesota and just have always been more connected to working with, you know, African-American males growing up in places like Detroit and Chicago. And so really, you know, that's how I, I began to kind of figure out my career and figure out how do I do that? How do I take my business skills, work with ideally black and, you know, black and brown young men, particularly black men growing up in a more uh, urban context and, but also still be like in this kind of leadership um, business development kind of role. And so that's, you know, that's really the the journey that I, I, I went on over the next kind of two to three years and ended up in this seat. And I got to tell you, man, like when I was interviewing for this gig, it was, it was hard to believe. It was like, wait a minute, this is checking all the boxes, right? Like you don't, you don't find roles like this. Um, I, right. I didn't think that roles like this existed. And all of a sudden, you know, here it was right in front of me. And so, you know, it's been a real it's been a real interesting journey to to step into being like an executive leader in the nonprofit space, all of a sudden leading a team of all men, because it's also a, it's a male to male counseling mentoring program. So it's a team of all primarily men of color, mm -hmm. um, but also really never having had that experience of leading a team of that size and scale and scope. And so that really became uh, a journey early on that I certainly have grown into uh, and really feel very comfortable in the role I'm in now. Right. Gosh, there's, there's, there's a lot in there. So first and <laughs> foremost, but I mean, a lot of good, good stuff to, to pick at, but first and foremost, you know, leading uh, a team of this, you know, size, scale, scope, it, it all of that brings up something that uh, my oldest brother, he always references because he's gone into education. I decided to go into business mm -hmm. and he, he talks about how corporate America siphons off not all, but a majority of the best minds in our society. Hmm. Um, and so you making that pivot to take, you know, this education that you got and this intellect and natural ability to be able to deal with complex situations and manage large scale teams, but then to go apply it to for purpose. Uh, I like that phrasing. I never heard that before. Yeah. Um, I can see that being really, really valuable because I've spent time in the nonprofit and education space. And it's not like everyone who's in a leadership position has the people management side of things down packed. They might have the subject matter down, but they don't have the people management side, which is a whole other discipline. So I can see that being really beneficial in your work. Yeah. 
No, I think that, that that's 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 spot on. I think when I when I walked in the door, you know, I I fortunately had spent um, about two years at a at a different nonprofit before I ultimately ended up in this role, and so I wasn't coming in totally cold, right, right. into understanding the nonprofit sector and a bit of what how different it is from the business sector, but. You know, it's like like you talked about. Like I'm, I, you know, I'm the I'm the one so I'm the one sibling that's in the nonprofit space where I got, uh, you know, my my older brother uh, and both my older brothers and my younger sister who are like in the business space. Well, technically, my older brother's in education as well, but he's kind of an, in a quasi role. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely being able to so coming in right away and being like, oh, okay. This stuff does translate, right? There's a lot of like people management is people management, whether you're in the corporate sector, the nonprofit sector, the public mm-hmm. sector, um, you know, my little background in, in politics on campaigns. It's ultimately a lot of the same stuff, um, yep. but certainly understanding like, you know, instead of working with MBAs, I'm working with MSWs, right? These right. are these are individuals who've got their masters in social work or psychology or counseling. And so, you know, just understanding like a lot of times in the in the private sector, the, the idea is that you need to how do you tap into somebody's like altruism and that kind of uh, that kind of mission driven side of them. Right. How do you find more of that in the work? Well, that's not the case in, in the nonprofit. That's where folks are leading with. And so it's kind of like, right. how do you tap into more of their management? How do you tap into more <laughs> of their, you know, building some of like, you know, let's do strategic planning. Let's sit down and you know, think about systems and structures and, uh, and frameworks. And so really bringing that mindset into this, into this space was really, uh, I immediately felt like there was a value add and like it was living out, I think, what I, what I envisioned. But man, I think the other pieces that I did not anticipate were just understanding the, the constraints of being mm-hmm. in the nonprofit space, right? Because, you know, in the for-profit space, if you have a great product, you go put it on the marketplace and and you get and you make profit and then right. you can plow that back into the work that you do. But in the nonprofit yeah. sector, if you have a great product, right, or program, you do it really well. You probably need to evaluate it and get some get some outcomes. Then you still have to go kind of I use the term beg for dollars, right? You still have to go, you know, sing for your supper, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so just like that was not something I had I really understood and appreciated, and so then that can very quickly shift. You know, if you even if you've got a great program that's getting great outcomes, you still have to constantly be in this negotiation with the folks who are funding the program or who have the resources, all right, to really bring to bear. I mean, keep it keep it a buck. Like, ultimately, why I got out the nonprofit space because I mm-hmm. I had uh, founded a, a scrappy little nonprofit that worked with youngsters in East Oakland and. I ran that through most of my twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately why I left was I was sick of singing for my supper. It was like, look, I am out here on seminary East 14th. I'm living in this neighborhood. <laughs> I'm working in this neighborhood. Like it's mainly like I'm dealing with folks shooting in the park while yep. I'm, while I'm releasing kids from my program. And I got to run out towards the bullets to get my babies back into a safe space. Yep. And, doing this work grades are going up behaviors are going up 
these kids, you know, they've, they've gone on to thrive, but I'm doing this work and I'm making this impact. But each year, you know, I got to go beg somebody for money. Yep. And they start, you know, making these requests. And ultimately, it's like they try and take, because he who controls the dollars kind of sets the rules. And yeah. so they start trying to take control of the organization. And I was, you know, I mean, you know me. Like, I was like, no. <laughs> I don't think you, that would have gone over well with you. Yeah, yeah, like, I don't know how deep, I don't care how deep your pockets are. You're not going to tell me how to do this work that I've already been doing on a completely bootstrap budget. I've been doing really well impacting these black and brown babies in East Oakland. So yeah. I, I just hated the way in which that felt. Yeah. And that's when I was then compelled and I referenced it in another episode. I decided to go sit at the other end of the table. Yeah. And I was like, I was going to take my skills to go sit on the business side of the table and be able to write the check, but not lose my purpose, like not lose my connection and understanding of how people are systemically oppressed and want to be able to support and help those folks, but I just I was not cut out to be the person that had to go <laughs> and, and ask for those funds on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, I think it's you know I I get I get the the pressure and the value of that work, and it's now I'm on the other side being able to I'm building myself towards being able to write these checks. My checks are <laughs> I'm, I'm writing checks now, but they're not they're not that big because I'm not quite there yet in my career, my personal finances to be able to write really big checks. But I do also miss being able to do that frontline work that um, you and your organization is doing. And I wanted to ask you um, a few minutes ago when you you brought up that it was a bunch of men running a young boys only program. Like, tell me, tell me about that, that decision and and why you guys decided to go that route. Yeah. So, um, so in, in, in full transparency, so I'm not the founder of the program, right? I didn't create the program. I came into a program that was, um, fairly well established or was uh, getting well established. Uh, The program started initially back in 2001 and I joined the team in 2014. Uh, And I came in directly to the director's chair, right? So we've got counselors, supervisors, managers, and then I came in right into the director's chair, uh, which is a particular way to enter the organization. Um, But, but the decision really just came out of, um, you know, the, the program was, was created organically. Like a, some programs are created like in universities with, you know, researchers and, and practitioners kind of working together. This program really was created just uh, through, the, through the spirit and, and energy of our founder, right? A guy named Anthony Ramirez de Vittorio. We affectionately call him Tony D, a.k.a. Right. The, AKA the BAM father. The program's called <laughs> Becoming a Man. Yeah, 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 we yeah. call it BAM, so we call him the BAM father. Uh, and really, he just really channeled his own lived experience, right? He grew up on the southwest side of Chicago, uh, proud, right, um, uh, Mexican and Italian heritage. And so kind of navigating, right, the same kind of neighborhood you talk about in East Oakland, right? Um, yeah. But he was always just kind of half step away from exactly what was going on. He was watching his older brothers um, and how they were very much involved, but he was kind of the younger brother sitting back. So I certainly identify with that. And he would always talk about when he saw the older, you know, the older guys in the park, you know, as he affectionately says, you know, sipping lemonades, right, you know, right, uh, right? and the machismo, you know, all the machismo would fall away. And all of a sudden, after a few lemonades, you know, guys would start opening up to each other. And they'd be like, man, you know, I love you, man, so much. You know, how come, you know, they all of a sudden start pouring their, their souls and their hearts out to each other. And so this idea that ultimately men 
we want to check in, right? Like we want that connection, that bond that happens at a deeper level. Um, but like the societal norms don't give us that permission. Yep. And so, you know, that was one part for him. Second, he would, he'd become a young father in his twenties. Um, and really, you know, did not have great models of fathering in terms of, so was figuring that out and got, uh, got involved in something called the men's movement. Um, and really, so that's all about, you know, men, uh, you know, kind of has some mythology around like men going to the woods and going on these, you know, retreats, but it really is just this idea of rites of passage, this idea that, you know, we go back to indigenous and tribal societies, there was a formal, right. Uh, ceremony or event when boys became men, right. When young women became, when girls became women, uh, you know, and so that, that that has gone away except for, you know, fraternities, uh, sororities, yeah. gang, gangs, right, are still really good right. at it. And then you've, <laughs> right. got like, then you've got like the bar mitzvah, quinceañeras, right, uh, you know, communion um, or confirmation. And, and so this idea of tapping into what is just really natural for us as humans, frankly, but particularly for men uh, or for people who identify as male, this idea of some sort of rite of passage into adulthood. And that's really what's happening between kind of ages 12 to 18, which is where we do our work. So really, mm-hmm. it just it was very organic. Um, but then the last element, I think, you know, the other piece is like the organization I work for has a is a is a kind of social services organization, right? So we've got this clinical background, uh, history, and so you blend like mentoring and youth in youth development with clinical practice, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is the idea of connecting like thoughts, feelings, and actions with rites of passage, right? And then doing it in a school based setting. And that really is kind of the secret sauce or the, or the formula for the work that we do, which is just, and part of the reason why like we've gone to this expansion is it has just gotten ridiculous results, right? Huh. And in terms of what you're talking about, like if you're working in schools, if you're not moving the needle on behavior attendance and grades, like you're not gonna last in schools very long. And so right. we certainly have seen improvements in behaviors, things that we wanna see, uh, less of what we don't. Um, certainly attendance that is outpacing, right, uh, you know, kind of the, the school average, or at least for this population. And then you're seeing young men staying on track to graduate and then actually graduating on time at almost 20% higher rates than their essentially identical peers. Right. And that's, and that's just in school. And then it also, we had results that talk about the impact in the neighborhood. We were seeing, you know, reductions in arrests, right, by about a third and, and arrests for violent crime by 50%, <laughs> which is just... <clears throat> And I, I didn't appreciate this coming in, like from you know my business background and what this meant in the field. But like I've had people who are researchers who look at this kind of stuff and have told me like you don't understand like this is you don't see stuff like this in terms of right. a program operating the way that this program operates. Um, and so that really has been a big part of what has kind of elevated the profile of this program, such that you know mayors, former presidents right? Elected officials, business leaders really have wanted to find out like, what are we doing and right. how do we, and how do we figure out how to do this in our, in our own neighborhoods and communities? So, right. Yeah. Like people, people want to get what the secret sauce is and the, the, something I find this important, I mean, it's confirmation bias, right? Like, so I started bootstraps and I'm sure just knowing me inevitably, you know, this store, the, this, uh, series is going to expand beyond men because yep. it just doesn't feel completely natural to me to 
say it's only going to focus on black men, but also notice it's important for yeah. us to have a space to talk about. There's, there's a very unique experience that comes with being black and male yeah. on the intersectionality map. And quite honestly, you know, I feel like sisters have been holding down quite well and they're shining right now in recent years in particular. Um, I wanted, I've read a study where per capita, I think black women are the most educated group in our country. Yeah, and right. it's, it's not that black men are completely, you know, screwing up, but there's, there's work that we need to do to do better. There are plenty of us that are doing great. And that's what this uh, series is about, is about bringing those voices and those narratives to the forefront to counteract, you know, just the, the mass narratives of dysfunction and chaos that are, that are put out there about black men, but it's to create a space where we can have these honest conversations about what is it like to be a black man and to, to show examples of how other black men can be able to step up and really like step to greatness. So I think it's important that you guys have created that space because there is a, there's just a unique experience that comes with being black and male that requires very unique treatment and, and, and therapy for, for lack of a better term. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I I mean, I mean, this has been, you know, when I, when I sit in, when I sit in circles with our young men, and there's kind of two levels to it, um, the way I think about it. You know, the, 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 the work that we do get to recognize most for the impact we're having with young men, with the young men, uh, the scholars who are in our program. But if you ask me, like, if I, you ask me, like, all right, really, really, like, what's the, what's the real magic? I'm like, it's the work we do with the men who lead the circles that mm. then translates to the impact we're able to have with the young men. So for, so for instance, you know, I'm coming into this work at the time. I'm a 30-year-old, um, you know, I'm a 30-year-old man, uh, just recently married, um, just recently became a father, and I'm stepping into this leadership role for this organization. And so leading a team, right, of, of other men, primarily of color. So that could trip that could trigger all sorts of insecurity right just as you know imposter mm-hmm. syndrome all all of the things yeah. very likely come up or feeling like all right well if i'm going to be the alpha male in this in this squad right then i need to exert my authority to be right. like the alpha right yeah um, and be mad dysfunctional but, right and and so like if you think about like it, it's very difficult to disconnect the work that we do from the broader systems that exist that are we're certainly talking about right now in, in society in, in more explicit ways than we probably have in a while. And so if you ask us the question, well, where do the men who we hire come from? Well, mm-hmm. they come from the same neighborhoods, the same communities, by and large, have had a lot of the same lived experiences as the young men that we're ultimately trying to serve. And if we really go back and say, well, how were things for that generation of men? And frankly, we've got guys as, as young as 25 and as old as, you know, 70. So this is kind of intergenerational. But like over the last 70 years, how have things been for, how have things been for, for men of color in this country? And the reality is these men likely need the same spaces, mm-hmm. right? 
the same support in terms of from a therapeutic perspective. They're navigating right, being oftentimes the breadwinner or the or the or in their family, the rock in their community. Um, and let's be clear, right? The nonprofit sector is not where you go to right, um, you know, to get wealthy. And so, like you know, this work is not going to be the most most uh, highly paying job you're going to find. Right. Um, and so, like, so the work we do with the, the first people we put through our program are actually the counselors, actually the adults. And it's an ongoing basis where we, we do our work first. And that gives us, and I can't tell you, like, for me, like, I, it unlocks so many things that I didn't know I needed to take a look at, right? And I, and I considered myself a pretty well-adjusted guy. Um, but there was still a lot of stuff that I had never, I didn't have the, the language, the tools. I didn't have the space or the support. There wasn't a community of men where I could, where I felt like I could actually speak my truth. And it not cause destruction or be afraid of the destruction it might cause. Right. And that's, and so like, that's been a part of the journey for me personally. It's, you know, when I ask, when you talk to our staff, they talk about, listen, I came for the kids, but I stayed because I was getting so much of it for me. Like I've had people's, you know, wives, partners be like, Hey, he needs to stay working for this program because something's changing in him. Right. In addition to the work he's doing with our young men. And then you hear our young men talk about it and they go, this is a different space than what I'm used to experiencing as I'm navigating right my neighbor, my, you know, my, my school. Yeah. So that yeah. as you talked about that space is so critical um, for, for men. Certainly. I think we have, we have a girls program too, right. Who's doing the same thing for the young sisters, but for men in particular, and particularly in this age, as you're going through adolescent identity development, just a lot of things are changing, you know, having that space, there's a pragmatic element to it, which is like, we just find that young men are more open when there's not a young woman present, right, to be vulnerable. But mm-hmm. there's also just like a very spiritual, indigenous kind of um, kind of going back element to it as well. Absolutely. And just a quick plug, like folks, you out there, you know, especially, you know, black men, you out there, trust me, you, you are traumatized in some way. <laughs> you, Amen. Know, you are, if you're alive right now, you you have been traumatized. So figure out how to go and, and get that work done and, um, and heal, like whether it's working with, you know, your spiritual advisors, your church, your uh, therapists. I know mental health has a lot of, has had, I want to quit pushing that narrative. It yep. has had a lot of negative stigma, but it's also, it's less now, there's less stigma to mental health now than say 10, 20 years ago. So, you know, yeah. whatever it is you need to do to, to heal your trauma, um, Go and do that, you know, because it's it's important. You don't want, you know, the baggage of things that you had no control over in your childhood um, to still, you know, impact you and weigh you down as you are now a fully formed adult. Um, so, so heal yourself so you can get free and move forward. Um, but and and until that point, let's go back to like understand like the the, the making of AJ Watson and how did you like become. <laughs> you know, like who you are. Cause that was, that was a, that was a really big decision to come out of, I mean, you know, I, I know you, you are a really polished, sharp dude. You could end up working wherever you want it. And you came out, you know, with your MBA from Michigan and you chose to then go into the nonprofit space and leave a lot of dollars on the table. So. Don't think so. Reminder. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Well, let's 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 go let's go back and figure out like how how you got to become this person. So like, tell tell me about growing up. Cause I know you you repped the 
the the D pretty hard, yeah. but you also like you, you grew up primarily in in uh, Minnesota, right? So yeah, t- tell me tell me about that. Yeah, so yeah, so um, yeah, so I like I, if I'm gonna claim, so I, I definitely rep Detroit, right? That's where I was born. That's where my mama my mama's side is from. Um, you know, I, I grew up a, a long suffering Lions fan, uh, you know, had some joys back in the, back with the, uh, the fab five and the Pistons, uh, right. there was some quarterback from Michigan who ended up being pretty good in the NFL at some point. Right. Um, so, so I definitely, definitely grew up, um, in Michigan. So I was born in Detroit, grew up until I was three. And then my family moved to, um, outside of Lansing, Michigan, um, so a little suburban community where a lot of, frankly, I grew up, I say I grew up in the shadows of Michigan State, um, uh-huh. which is a, a conversation for another time and uh, space. Um, right. And lived there till, till uh, I was about 10. Uh, and I've got two older brothers uh, and a younger sister. And I think, you know, my family ultimately moved to Minneapolis when I was about 10 outside of Minneapolis because of really who my parents were. And so my, both of my parents um, were, uh, my dad grew up in Muskegon Heights, Michigan, on the west side uh, of Michigan, uh, as many folks would describe as on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side is really, it's the black side of the tracks, right? Uh, right. There's Muskegon and then there's Muskegon Heights. Um, mm. And my mom uh, grew up in Detroit, um, primarily in Detroit, but also a little bit um, kind of up between Detroit and Flint, up towards a little kind of more rural town called Holly, Michigan. Um, and so, like, you know, all my family is from Michigan, right? Michigan is very much in my blood. Any good Michigander can show you where they grew up on the mitten. Right. Uh, and, and I'm very much one of those, one of those guys. Uh, but my, my dad affectionately refers to our family as like a family of peddlers. Uh, and he means that in the most loving, right, like endearing right. way possible because my dad was in sales for Xerox. My mom was in sales for IBM. So Big Blue, right, and Xerox, these were two just powerhouse uh, organizations back um, in, the, uh, in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s uh, when they were working there. Right. Um, and, what, and what had us end, ultimately end up moving is that, um, you know, my dad really, and, and kind of together with my mom, had a discussion about, you know, financial wealth or kind of bettering the family financially. And so, you know, my dad got an incredible opportunity to go into what was called the um, Chrysler Minority Dealers Program. So pursuits of becoming a car dealer. Right. Um, Which, you know, I don't, I I didn't know anything about cars and the auto industry. Um, Never really thought I would. But what, what we came to find out is like the car business is actually an incredibly lucrative um, sector, right? For mm. those that are that are those that are that are owning car dealerships, you know, if you're working in it, fine, you know. But it's also it's kind of it's I don't say it's high risk, high reward, but the you know cars are not cheap, and so like yeah. there is a level of kind of financial risk involved in being in a car dealership. Like if you can't move that product uh, in an effective way, like you can you can make a bunch of money, but you can mm. also lose a bunch really fast too. Yeah, And so he was coming up right in the age of there was affirmative action programs that created some spots for minorities to be able to get into this industry. Uh, and so he went and pursued that opportunity. And so the family kind of came together, rallied around it. 
you know, made the, the series of sacrifices necessary to kind of scrape together the, the money. Um, and then he got an opportunity to become a car dealer um, in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, which is just out, or Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which is just outside of Minneapolis, about uh, kind of first suburb, uh, kind of on the northwest side of Minneapolis. Okay. Um, and that was in the, in the early 90s. Um, so, right, you think about what was good, you know, you think about the roaring 90s in terms of economies. But he came into a turnaround situation and really had to turn things around pretty, uh, pretty aggressive. So we actually he was actually up in Minneapolis for like two years working on the business, ensuring that it was stable before we relocated the whole family from Michigan to Minnesota. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so what was that like for you with, with Pops being gone yeah. for, for two years? So it was, you know, like as a kid, you don't really, you know, it was, it was an element which was normal because he was already had been mm. gone multiple days a week when he was going through the training program, he would commute to Detroit and he'd be there. Like, I think he'd be home Monday night, home Friday night, but in Detroit, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right. Right. So he was, I guess, a consultant before, you know, before I knew <laughs> what a consultant was in terms of his work schedule. Um, and so like, there was an element, like it just was normal. Right. It was an element of like, I remember like my mom. I mean, she was working full time and running the house full time. And like she ran a super tight ship. Like, I'll never forget the day when we were supposed to be ready for piano lessons. You know, she's showing up in the garage. It's like three thirty, wherever time it is. We got to get to get to this lady's house, you know, three forty five or four o'clock. And like, if you are not ready with all your stuff, when she pulls in the garage and honks the horn at three thirty you don't want to not be ready. Right? Like, <laughs> right. And like, I just remember this one time that sticks out of my brain, like we just weren't ready. Like we were just all messed up and like, we, we heard about it. Right. Like it was the last time we weren't ready. Um, <laughs> you know what that's smart. <laughs> right. So like this element of like, uh, you know, as siblings of like, we just, we just, there was a rhythm, like there was a routine. There was a, you know, we all pitched in and we're doing chores and all those kind of things that you just, because like my mom was running the show, yep. right? Like, and she was doing it pretty much solo. Like we had some additional help, um, um, you know, be because we needed it. But like we had a, as a kids, like you weren't just going to sit back and not have a role to play. Everyone had their chores. Everyone had their, their things to do. Um, and so like, it wasn't, it, it, you know, I've, I've kind of reflected back on it. Like, man, what is it? What was it like to not have my dad around for, you know, for two and three and four years or only around very sporadically. And it was just normal. Like I didn't think a lot yeah. of it, but I definitely, um, I definitely appreciate being, being around him. Right. I definitely appreciate the opportunities to be in his presence, but I think it also really got me really close with my siblings, right. Yep. That we really kind of came together uh, as a unit. So um, you know, we moved to Minneapolis and like, just as a, like we moved into a, you know, a two bedroom, one bath apartment, um, for the five of us for a period of time <laughs> as we were trying to get things figured out. Talk about um, being close. Right. So like we had a bunk bed with a trundle bed, right? Like all three of us in there, you know, uh, my, my oldest brother was quite a bit older. So he was at college, um, or working. And so you know, it was just like, that was an intense, like it was an intense year as we were, cause like, you know, the goal was financial empowerment. So they were, we were trying to get to a house, but it was going to take time to get to the, get to the house. Um, right. And so like this, just this process of just like making it work, you know, making it work and figuring it out um, and just kind of staying focused on, on, on the bigger picture. So, 
Um, and then we finally got to really take advantage of that once we got into a house that was, it was, you know, I had my own room. So that was a, yeah. that was a big deal. Right, yeah. right, right. And I just hear, I hear so much anxiety in that story though too, right? Or at least that's what comes up for me while I'm listening to it. So I yeah. just hear all of this risk, right? There's just like the, the risk and trepidation that you have to go through to be able to, I call, I call create for black people creating wealth. Yep. It's like trying to get outside of like Earth's gravitational pull. Yeah. You know, it's just like so much is like pulling you down and every step of the way there's like the fact that you didn't inherit, you don't you don't have wealth that's been nope compounding for the past fifty, a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred years. Like you're you know, we didn't get the forty acres and a mule and the or like the land grants that some immigrant populations got when they came here. We didn't get any of that. So we don't have, a a lot of us don't have compounding wealth and being able to create that first, you know, wad of, of wealth to kind of get you outside of gravitational pool of poverty or where things then are starting to just like flow and you're not just living check to check. It's really difficult. Yeah. And, and, And that was really, I mean, it was, like we didn't have to look far to see that, right? Like when we go when we go to Muskegon Heights and hang out with my dad's family, like he tell you he'll tell you, you know, he's from the projects, right? Yeah. And you know, this this hunger, right? This this fight to constantly better himself, better his family, um, you know, and and taking advantage of opportunities when they um, when they presented themselves, but also like. I mean, he's got some great stories in terms of just like, you know, interviewing for a job and, you know, not knowing any better, but also just kind of being hungry and like not leaving the building until he had confirmation from the interviewers that he got the job. Right. Right. Um, you know, being a janitor. Right. Uh, you know, when he was at college and, and cleaning up after people's parties. But then ultimately seeing an opportunity to go get his MBA, right? Um, you know, again, from an action program and just grinding and working his butt off to be able to, to really maximize those opportunities. And so when and hearing about this dealer program through through a buddy of his and then really getting into it, but being the only guy, like I think one of maybe two people in his class of like 15 people who made it and ultimately got, in, who got the opportunity to be, be a dealer. Right. Uh, and that, and that's my dad's story, right? On on my mom's side, you've got this kind of legacy of pioneering, where my great grandmother was like one of the first uh, women to have her own music school, like certified uh, by the university, and and taught like amazing, you know, like really uh, significant folks in Detroit, and, and how that passed down to you know her her daughter and, 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 and my mom and her siblings in terms of like their love for music, but also like being pioneering. I found out my mom was the first person like integrated her high school in this community in Fenton, Michigan, which I, like, I, I just learned recently all this kind of stuff. That's like, so like, that's my inheritance, right? Like that's part of my ancestral inheritance that I, if I'm aware of it, I then can take that with me and, and allow me to then say like, okay, so what are the, tra- what are the, trails I'm going to blaze? What are the pathways that I'm going to pursue? And I think, you know, I think, I think Martin said this on, on an earlier podcast is like, or BJ, part of the, part of the intentionality in parents kind of 
kind of getting to that wealth wealth accumulation or that moment is to be able to give their children the ability to kind of pursue a path mm. or a passion that doesn't just have to be about money. It can be about actually like, what are you great at? What are you brilliant at? And right. go do that and go have an impact on the world in, in that space. And I think right. that's, that's ultimately the biggest message I got is like, you know, and I, and I think I used to interpret it as like, what it means to be a man is like, you, you go sacrifice for your family. Because think about the inverse, right? Of my dad being away from his from his kids for all for the better part of four years, right? Like what? I mean, I mean that is a you know a huge sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, but what you have to have a vision of what you're doing this for. It has to be for something. Otherwise, like what? What? Why am I doing this? Yeah. Um. So I think that really is kind of the message that I that I got. And I think I think all of us as, as children got from my from my parents. Yeah, I think it's important to be clear on like what your why is. And I think like why you're doing something that, that that's what you're speaking to with your pops. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people um, don't get there in terms of having the clarity of what, of what their why is. But if you do have it, it could sustain you, you know, yep. through some really difficult times or it'll, it'll be fuel and motivation to, to get you beyond like the immediacy. You can have this long-term vision of what you're working towards and then go seek it. And I try and talk to anyone who like works for me and or I end up mentoring. You know, a, a part of my mentorship ends up being helping them to discover their why. Because yeah. adversity is, is inevitable. It just comes with life. Um, and when it, when it shows up, your why is what will help sustain you through that. Um, so I, I, I'm assuming, you know, you, so you guys make this big, anxious yeah. move out to Minneapolis you guys get settled down I'm assuming you know your parents were were successful with the with the dealership and the and or just their careers in Minneapolis yeah yeah things 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 ultimately went really well um the business went did went really well my mom ended up ultimately um uh, separating from IBM and spent a lot of time kind of at home but also doing some working from home bringing some of her IT background into supporting the business, mm-hmm. um, but really became, you know, it really investing in the family became like her primary uh, occupation. And, and, you know, which is one, what a blessing, right. To be able to have that opportunity. And yeah. two, but now as a, as a parent, I, I have a different appreciation for just how hard, how much work it is, right. To raise, um, to really, to raise three kids and do it, uh, to do it in a way that, uh, I think it was really tremendous. Uh, yeah. And so she was just a super present mom, right? Like she was at all the games, all the events. Um, she's also a super uh, intense competitor. Uh, let me just say that um, officially <laughs> for the record. So, uh, so like, you know, none of, none of us in the family played collegiate sports, but we were all pretty, um, pretty solid. Actually, so the sport in our family ended up being soccer. Okay. Um, which is a you know non a non traditional black sport, right? Let me just right. say yeah, that yeah. up front. Yeah, um, yeah, that's fair to say in the U.S. Right? I think, I think that's, a fair, that's a fair statement. You know, we got some got some young brothers coming up now, um, and even more uh, oddly, all you know, my older brother, me, and my sister all played the position of goalkeeper. We're all goalies. Oh, okay. And so, like, what I learned about like, and so that is like that is you know what a pitcher is to baseball you know, what the, what a point guard might be to basketball. 
um, you know, a goalie is, the, like I say, it's the only position in soccer that has a win-loss record other than the coach, um, right? Like you kind of often assign that to the goalie. Yeah. Um, and it's also this very particular mindset that I think really kind of has been the kind of, as I think about my whole life, right, to your question around the, the ultimate decision to go to the nonprofit after business school, I think comes back to how I see the world sitting back in the goalkeeper position. And cool. so the, the, the mindset that I often take is, you know, three things have to be true about a goalie. One is you have to, um, you have to be decisive, right? Like you don't get involved all that often, but when you do, when you make yep. a decision, you better get it right. Because when you screw up, it's a goal, yep. right? Two is you actually have to be really good at the, the skills associated with the game. Like I've got to be fast. I've got to be, you know, I've got to be able to kick the ball really well. Yep. Um, but I've got to be able to do it like once or twice, right? Or maybe five times. If you got a bad defense, you're doing it a lot, right? But like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, right. I always, always thought to myself, like, I've got to be the fastest guy, can, like every time. I've got, I've got to know if I'm not faster than that other person, right? right. Because if I, if I misread it, it it's going to be real embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the third one, I think, and this is really the mindset that has stuck with me is like. You, gotta, you get to see the whole thing unfold. And so it's chestnut checkers, right? Mm. I'm seeing every, all other, uh, what, 21 people on the field. And I know everyone's strengths and weakness. I know tendencies. And I'm, and I'm anticipating what is most likely to go. And then I'm positioning myself. I always think about the Wayne Gretzky quote, right? Like he always skated to where the puck was going to be, not where it right. was. Right, and, right, right, right. And like that's very much a mindset of a goalie. And then you've got to be a little bit crazy. You got to be a ri- enough of a risk taker to get in there and mix it up, right? And just like you know what, the ball's up in there. Is a crowd of people, but that's my ball, and I'm and I'm and I'm going to get it. I'm right. vocal about it, and you know clearly I can use my hands, so I got you know, I got a one advantage. But like, I'm going for it, and I yep. got to go get it, and I got to have confidence, and I got to get it and possess it and keep it to the ground. And then I got to pop up and I got to see an opportunity to kind of, you know, start the fast break. Yeah. yeah, And so like, there's so much mindset to me around like being a goalie for years that I carry with me in terms of assessing opportunities, being very strategic, positioning myself, and then, and then, and then making a decision and taking advantage of those opportunities when they come. Yeah. I think it's important to be decisive. There's a time to deliberate and there's a time to make a decision. Right. And, uh, I routinely um, talk with my team about this whole concept of go slow to go fast, right? So yeah. you go slow, like that would be your training. That's coming up with the game plan. That's the scouting where you start to learn the tendencies of the other players, like sticking with your goalie metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in business, you know, it's, it's, it's doing your analytics. It's like if you're trying to be a marketer and you're not deeply understanding business trends, um, and you're not deeply understanding uh, consumer insights and category trends, then you're just making stuff up, right? So that's right. the go slow part. But then when opportunities present themselves, you know, give the number of times in which a call or an email lands in my inbox or I, I get a phone call and there's this opportunity to do this really cool thing. Yeah. I'm able to be really decisive. Like, 
I get it based upon all the trends and what our strategies and objectives are. Like, this does not make sense. But when it does make sense, it's like, boom. And I know I don't need to sit there and have five other follow-up meetings to figure out if we want to do this because we took the time to prepare. And yeah. then it's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to go get that. And it's time, it's time to go make that happen. And I think that's an important trait to have as a leader, like that mentality of, of a goalie. Sit back, analyze, watch, feel, read. And then when it's time to go and you're yep. responsible, you got to go. Yep. Um, but I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a question about like your junior high and high school years. Yeah. Like in Minneapolis. <laughs> and like, what was that? What was that like for you as you, I mean, cause that's, I mean, that, that, that's where you go through the biggest transition, right? And I, I spent yeah. my whole life in and around, you know, my neighborhood. And even for a while, we moved um, over to Long Beach uh, to live with my grandma. She, she had a little spot over in the projects on the west side of Long Beach. But I then still went to school in Harbor City. And mm-hmm. I played all my sports in Harbor City. And so, um, curious. So I never had to deal with, like, that social uprooting. Yeah. Um, and I just realized all the changes I went through through junior high and high school, as I sit back and reflect on my development. And even that's when, you know, my, my middle brother took off to college. When, when I completed sixth grade, he graduated from high school and took off to college. So I went through junior high and high school as kind of like an only kid. And one of the big stabilizing things was at least I was still in my neighborhood, right? And yeah. I was still running around familiar places with familiar people. You get uprooted and taken out to Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you? And that was tough. Uh, I'll be, you know, I'll be, I'll be straight with you. Um, um, you know, I was old enough when we moved. I was ten when we moved from uh, Michigan to Minnesota. And uh, if the youth council of the family had uh, gotten its resolution adopted, we would have not moved. Right? We were not pro moving. Um, right. <laughs> clearly, we did not. We had a, a voice, but not a vote. Um, and so like, you know, you got to start, you got to start from scratch, right? You got to build, you got to build new friends, um, you know, figure out a new rhythm of, of an environment. And let me be clear, right? Like I, these are predominantly white spaces, right? Like Minneapolis is not a bastion, right? Of blackness. Um, (laughs) the, the suburbs of Lansing also not a bastion of blackness. And so I really struggled with my identity uh, as a as a as a black man, um, mm. because you know I was um, I was too too black for the white kids, uh, yeah. and 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 too white for the black kids. Yep. Right. Um, I, I got certainly the label of Oreo. Uh, you know, being black on the outside, white on the inside before. Yeah. Um, and, and that was that was really tough. Um, you know, and this is not some, oh, let's feel sorry for AJ story, right? Like, um, but, you know, it's I mean, middle, you know, junior high and high school are tough because yeah. you're figuring out who, like, the idea, it's so funny, I'm do, doing this work now for a living, right? It's like this idea of identity, like, who am I? Who am I becoming? Like, which which clicks am I going to roll with? Um, you know, uh, and and so part of you know part of the way I think I had 
adjusted to all that is like I've just always had this natural um, gift is that like I'm I don't have one particular group that I really uh, am, am down with. Yeah, uh, I've always been able to, you know, I had athletics. So, you know, cross country, running, soccer, track, basketball. Um, so I had so I had my athletic community that I was always able to connect with. Uh, but I was also a nerd. Right. And so right. like I was admittedly like I was in the chess club. I was in the math club. Um, um, you know, these were not my uh, they did not get me a bunch of uh, romantic relationships out of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but like if I was if I was being true to myself, like I loved numbers. Right. And being analytical. Uh, but I was also very much involved in like business. I was actually in a group called DECA, which was like a um, uh, uh, kind of a marketing business club that was kind of you took courses in the in business. And then you also did all these, you know, there was a student club and you did your leadership opportunities and, and competition opportunities. And I really, uh, frankly, I got really involved in DECA when I was in high school. It's probably my most significant thing I got involved in ultimately, like, I became a chapter chapter president, state president, and actually became a national officer for the organization um, when I graduated high school. So, like, there was an element of, like, and then the other complicating factor, which I think if, if I don't mention this, I'd be doing myself a disservice, is, like, my older brother was exactly three three grades older, which meant when he was a senior in high school, I was a freshman. Yeah. Uh, my sister was two grades under me, so when I was a junior, she was a freshman. Yeah. And, like, you know, my siblings uh, are a, a group of pretty badass individuals, right? Like, yeah. just just straight up. Like, my brother was captain of the soccer team, captain of the basketball team, right? Almost yeah. like a 4.0 kind of student. You know, my sister came in, and she was crushing it. And so, like, there was also this sibling comparison that was very, very present for me the entire time. You're always, you know, Rob's little brother. And my sister had even worse, right? She was Rob and AJ's little sister. Right, um, right, right. And like that can't be understated. Like I almost didn't play soccer because my brother played soccer, right? Like it was that level of like I didn't want to be compared to him because I'd grown up being his little brother for so long. Um, mm. And it, it impacted where I went to college. It impact, it's impacted a lot of the things I've done in life is this kind of internal sibling rivalry, comparison, um, just like, trying to again it's always trying to find who am i like what's my identity mm -hmm. and how do i where do i fit in um into this community that is a family which is the one thing like which has been the constant right like the only approval i've ever cared about is really the approval of my mom and my dad and my siblings because that was right. the one thing that's been constant as we move from detroit to lansing to minneapolis um yeah. and so that really was always kind of a, a big a big piece of it all yeah, and so it's there's there's like the natural teenage angst, right? Like yep. I think it's the classic come of age story. Like who am I? How do I how do I find my own unique voice and identity within this pack or tribe that I'm a part of, this family that I'm a part of that yeah. I still want to be connected to it and I love it, but I need to find out who I am. And then there's this added variable of having to do all that and being black because i think yep the 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 interesting piece is you catch hell as a black person no matter where you are so if you stay <laughs> you stay in the hood you're catching hell right like because you know right. there's 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 a lot of beauty and love and amazingness that happens in the hood but 
there's also a lot of dysfunction and danger. Like there's bad schools and they're giving like, you know, there's health risk. And then there's also just gang violence and like all the other stuff that kind of comes with that. So then right. you escape from that and you get to the burbs and your dad has this, and your mom, they have this long-term vision that they invest in and they sacrifice. And I'm sure it wasn't easy on your mom having your nope. dad being gone while he's preparing and, and um, going through his training and living that, like you said, consultant life where he's on the road most of the week for a better part of two, three, four years. And then you guys uproot and you move to Minneapolis and you guys are, you squeeze into this two bedroom, one bath apartment, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure that, that that did not help with the stress levels at all of trying to get a, a new business up and off the ground. That's a turnaround situation. And then yeah. you finally get to like this, this glide path, right. Of like, all right, the business is up and running is stable. We get into a house, we're building towards this future and this dream. And we're being able to send our kids to school. They're able to call themselves nerds, right. And invest in being nerds and play soccer and get these grades and all of this. But then you have to deal with this extra variable that, you know, going through your teenage years is difficult for everyone. But then you have this extra variable of like the white kids don't deal with you because yeah. you, you're black. And then the black kids don't deal with you because you're too white in air quotes in their mind. Yeah. Um, and there's just like, there's no rest for the weary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so what, what stabilized <laughs> you through that and got you through high school and onto your college experience? Yeah. So, I mean, through high school, like I, I just had a couple of great mentors um, who really exposed me to a place where I could, a place where I could find my own, I could find my own niche. Um, uh, coach Sanders, who had been the strength and conditioning coach and Lou and I had transitioned when we were first moving, I got involved in like summer, like summer athletic. He was like the strength conditioning coach for the high school, which the fact that a high school had one right, is its own story. Um, but this big, black dude uh like super built also i think taught history um and so like getting into that and like getting into like the the sports aspect was a big part of it but then second is i found uh, a, a nerdy white business professor uh a guy named by the name of dave ingstrom who ended up becoming like my mentor um and really you know sat me down really was the one who kind of saw in me the leadership potential and vision um, and kind of laid out a path for me. And I was like, Hey, listen, I think you could be great if, you know, if, if you want to, but you're going to have to make decisions around where you invest your time. Cause you're mm. not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to do 10 things really well. You can probably do two or three, but you mm-hmm. gotta, you gotta make some decisions. And this was like after my freshman year in high school. Right. So I'm like, okay, wow. No one's ever kind of sat me down and kind of had this talk with me. And he's like, we'd love to have you get involved in this club. And we think, you know, leadership could be in your future. I'm like, you know, I feel like a, like a, you know, free agent kind of getting signed here, like making the pitch, <laughs> but I'm right, like, right. but, but this was, this is how it went. And, and so he laid it out and I was like, okay, I thought about it. Uh, and by the way, the only reason I was at this club to begin with, cause I followed a girl to some club meeting. Right. So, <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> yo, we, we have all done it. Trust me. Yes. Uh, best decision I ever made following her to the meeting, not necessarily that relationship. Um, and I was like, all right, like you made a compelling case. Uh, I'm in. And so like, I spent the majority of my four years in high school in this student organization, um, really getting involved. Like I, I mean, like, again, 
this is sounds crazy, but like I'm studying, I'm reading John Maxwell leadership books. I'm reading the seven mm-hmm. habits of highly effective people at 14, 15, 16. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and I'm all in, like all in. Yeah. Um, and so like, I then pursue my lead, like all of my ambitions, I was able to channel because I, I wasn't that good at basketball. I was good enough at soccer. I did that throughout the whole time, but really it was this business club that really is where I put all of my time, energy and effort into. Um, and that was absolutely transformative. Like I actually became, we had a, a, a business in the school, like the school school store. I don't know if everyone has one of these, but like a place where you can get, you know, it's open during lunchtime. You can get snacks and candy and stuff. Yep. You can get like school paraphernalia. It's open before school and after school. I also became, I became, I managed that store. Like I did a kind of co-op for my senior year. I was at school half the day and the other half of the day I was working in this store. And so I was actually a store manager mm-hmm. at, 17 18 years old i remember i went to a candy convention had to go like buy candy and these things exist there's a place where like it's every kid's dream where they got like all the new dope candy that's coming out and you're (laughs) and and you're like and they're pitching Uh you on like you want the sweet tarts with this and all this kind of crazy stuff (laughs) all Um, the latest snacks all all of them all the snacks slushies and all it was crazy um so you know doing all that you know, really got invested in that, um, got into student leadership, got involved like in the youth leadership. So was a, an officer for the state and then had the crazy ambition to be like, you could actually be, run for like this national leadership position. And it's, you have to commit a year of your life after you graduate high school and you represent either the national or re- organization or like one of the four regions in the U S and ultimately became like the regional, the regional vice president for the, for the Midwest region while I was a freshman at Howard. So part of how I part of how I finally kind of dealt with all this kind of identity crisis was I went to Howard. Yeah. Like my brother had gone to Florida A&M. He was having the time of his life. I went down there and saw like for homecoming one year. And I was like, I'd never seen like <laughs> this many black people. Plus, it was like, you know, it's Tallahassee. Right? Right. It was a very particular <laughs> right, subset of black of black people. And I was like, this is the. You know, there's beautiful black women everywhere. There's black men. There's, you know, it's like it's just black excellence everywhere. And I was like, I want that. But yeah. I was like, but again, I couldn't go where my brother was, right? Yeah. So I had to go find a place that was for me. So I also had gotten a little bit bit by the political bug, and so DC became like this perfect. Had a great business program at Howard. It was right in the heart of DC, of, of like politics in DC. And then like, um, you know, it was it was this beautiful black. Um, kind of black experience because I was like, I know I need to get secure in what it means to be a black person because I don't want to re- live the rest of my life between these two worlds or not or not having like not being more grounded in mm. who I am. Ab- absolutely, and it it seems like the first step of that grounding is you like you found what you were authentically passionate in, passionate about while yep. you were in high school and. You made peace with that. Like, yeah, like I'm really into this business thing. Like I dig it. I vibe off of it. I'm just like going to invest full fledged into it. Boom. Yep. You ran with that. And then you have this, you have this mind blowing experience down at FAMU. And so then, you know, you decide to go to Howard and I, I'm, I'm going to let you tell your story, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> how, not, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure in terms of like how this is going to, how this story is going to pan out. Um, 
but you go you go to this place where you know there's blackness is many things it doesn't have to just be one thing and i yeah. i got i for me i got permission young like my family was super yeah like my my <laughs> my, my family was awesome i'm just gonna but they, <laughs> they were definitely they were definitely like really really it was like half hood half you know rural arkansas got it but my oldest brother and i don't know how he became who he became but him having the strength and fortitude to go off and become himself and to go to uc berkeley and be a nerd but still was like mad diesel like physically and was like very <laughs> right. well respected Right. That gave me permission. So from a very young age, I ha- I had permission to be both very very black or what was deemed very very black, like very hood, and also mm-hmm. to be super nerdy and into like random stuff that no one else in the hood was into. And I never had to really choose between those two. So you make it off to Howard, and we'll love to hear like what that experience was like for you in terms of settling into yourself as as a black man. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it took some time, right? Like, I mean, in, in full transparency, um, I remember the first night my parents, you know, dropped me off and I'm there. And for those that know Howard, um, like back in 01, 05 era, um, you know, kind of the, the broader context was DC was kind of just beginning another re- like a, gentr- a regentrification process. Um, so it was still like Chocolate City. And right in front of Howard, there's a well-known street, George Avenue. And there's a McDonald's right there on the corner, like Kitty Corner from campus. And like the first night, motorcycles are coming down the street. You know, it's like it's like a block party, right? It reminded me actually of like, um, you know, one of those nights in, in, in Tallahassee um, when people would just be out on the main right. drag in Tallahassee, like their cars and everything. And it was just like, I'm here, I'm by myself in this big city um you know i know like maybe one or two people um and i'm terrified (laughs) like just absolutely like what have i done i've i've made a massive mistake i need i need to go home right now like let me let me get back to safety um but you know the sun came up the next day and uh you know i and i began this journey of like all right i'm here I'm in the business school, like, you know, I, I, I'm very secure in, in what I came to do in terms of like my business degree, that part. And, and, and they had a great program in terms of, you know, you lived on the same in the dorm with folks who were on your business team it was actually a black male retention program, which is ultimately like helps me learn about like the work I do now. Um, I begin to make some really important relationships. Um, one uh, ended up making friends with a guy who ends up being when I lived in Michigan, I grew up down the street from his uncle. And so we end up becoming very good friends. A guy you might know a name of guy, by, the, by a guy by the name of Adam Guthrie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother story for a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we can put that podcast out. <laughs> no, 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 that was, that was not good. That's not a public podcast. Um, and our lives of course have intertwined for the, you know, for the better part of now 20 years uh, because of that. But, I began to try on all these different versions of myself. Like, you know, I tried to wear the Tims and the jeans, you know, right. and the FUBU. Uh, and I just looked, <laughs> I just looked ridiculous. Right. Like, right, let's right. be, let's be real. Like it didn't, wasn't comfortable. 
uh, wasn't me. Um, so I, I just kept on kind of like trying out different versions of myself until I finally ended up right back where I started with mm-hmm. a recognition that like, you know what? It's okay to be um, a guy that has kind of had an upper middle class upbringing mm-hmm. um, from Minneapolis, um, right? That frankly, that, that you know, where, I, where I'm smart and I like and I like being smart, and I'm not, and I don't want to hide that. Uh, but I also like to party, right? I like to have a, I like to have a ton of fun. Um, and I just got, I just got by the end of the course of like a year or two, I got really comfortable in that in my own skin. Mm-hmm. And and I think from that point forward, it was just, I'm now just trying to take advantage of opportunities, right? Not have, notwithstanding, like I also made a bunch of. I screwed a bunch of stuff up um, in my first year. I pledged a fraternity. I was in the honors program. I had a scholarship, and I messed up my GPA such that I lost my scholarship, got kicked out of the honors program, and didn't have housing. Remember, I'm also like a national officer, so I'm traveling, and I'm trying to be the man right. and not taking care of my business, right? Like I'm yeah, doing right. way, 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 way too much. Um, and, uh, and it all came to root, it all kind of came to a head when, by the end of that year, like I essentially lost it all, everything I came in there with, I had to kind of start over from scratch. Yeah. Um, so I'm living off campus with my cousin who I don't really know, but like we're living together. I'm separated from everything that's going on, on campus. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed, right? Like, um, you know, there was a lot of nights where I was just like soul searching. Yeah. Um, but when I came out on the other side of that with was like, again, I had to find my zone. I had to find my lane. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in, a, in, the, in the fraternity. It was a professional fraternity I pledged. I got very much involved. I became dean of pledging, got very much involved in that work. And that really carried me in student government um, and got very much involved in like in that part of the, the college experience. Of course, I had a bunch of fun, uh, made some great relationships. Um, and ultimately ended up, you know, kind of the last tale of that is like, okay, so the, the if I'm going to come out of this really well, I've got to find a job. Um, and so one of these, again, it's one of these kind of like, I looked at investment banking, interviewed for that, didn't get it. Um, ultimately interviewed with the New York Stock Exchange, which is a really interesting experience, um, and got an opportunity there. But then because of just kind of like the kind of person I am, I just, I'm a, I just show up. I show up places. I spend a lot of time. I find mentors. And so my mentor at, at, at Howard is a guy named Harold Gray. He was the head of career services. He had a gray, gray head of hair. He was a preacher as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, had a, he had a speech for everything. right? And one day I was just sitting there in the business school because that's just where I, I just hung out in the business school all the time. He was like, hey, there's a, folks from upstairs. There, you know, Come up. Come up to the info session. They, hire, they got jobs. right? So I was like, come up find these folks from this company called Genworth Financial, um, which is a spinoff of GE. I didn't really understand what that all meant at the time, but uh, met a guy named Ron Edwards, who was the recruiter, uh, hit it off with him, and ultimately you know, got an opportunity to join their financial development program, which is kind of the old GE F&P program that they were spinning mm-hmm. off. So this new company down in Richmond, Virginia, um, in finance, which was my major and ultimately decided between the stock exchange and, and the company and in uh, in Richmond and ultimately going with Genworth Financial, um, and that was just a really 
you know, it was a proud moment for me. It was like, all right, I made it. I, I did what I came to do here, right? Like I got, uh, as Harold Gray would say, I got my groceries. Right, 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 right. Like I got my groceries. I came here. I got my experience. I got grounded in who it was. This belief in Howard built, just kind of drives it into your head that you're, it's about leadership for America and the global community. So like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but somehow I'm going to be a leadership, leader for America and the global community. That's what, that's what my ultimate end goal is in life. Um, mm. And so I go down to Richmond and I, uh, I start working, but that's actually a whole nother chapter. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't go to Richmond. I went to Lynchburg, Virginia, Oof. which, which is rural, central Virginia, conservative. That's where Liberty University is, Jerry Falwell's uh, uh, group. And I'm working in life insurance and finance in Lynchburg, mm. Virginia, uh, which was its own just like one explaining to black people at Howard, like I'm going to a place that has a name Lynch in the name and I promise yeah. you it's OK. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But two, like this is where I'm going to start my career and I don't know what's what's going to come, you know, down the road. But like this is what I'm doing. Um, right. So it was a, it and was I, a I, I just have to, yeah, I have to interject for a hot second. Okay. <laughs> it's like my mind is blown. I have like eighteen things running through it. <laughs> listen to that story, but I'm gonna make a quick like point for in this mass awakening that's happening in our society right now, and people are revisiting monuments in particular, like in these old vestiges of the Confederacy. Let's just marinate on the fact that there, there's a town called Lynchburg. Yes, and how sick that is, and that so, that is still a part of. So let me let me. So this is what I explain to people. The town was named after a gentleman named James Lynch, who was a Quaker. He was actually a super peaceful dude. <laughs> um, so it's not named about lynching black people first. However, <laughs> however. <laughs> During the Civil War, Richmond was the capital of Richmond, Virginia, was the capital of the, of the Confederacy. Richmond burned down, or was burned down by Union troops. When Richmond burned down, the seat of the Confederacy was moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> gotcha. So gotcha. So yes, and <laughs> yes, yes, and. <laughs> Duly noted, because then I know there's there's like Lynchburg, Tennessee. Yeah, there's a few more Lynchburgs, and then whenever I hear those names, I'm like, <laughs> because it's not like lynching is not a big part of our lived experience. But thank you for that, for not just for me, but everyone who's listening to that educational moment, right? So like, listen, um, I had I had to know what the meaning of this place was if I was going to live in a place yeah, right, called right, Lynchburg right. as a black man in America. Like I had to know. Yeah, because I there's there's there's. Zero percent chance of getting me to accept that job offer, <laughs> just given given my sensibility. I'm like, uh, that is a hard pass. But the 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 bigger point that I wanted to click on is like, I'm really happy to hear this story that you shared from, you know, your first night at Howard up until landing in Lynchburg, of all of this trial and error, because you know, um, this um, I heard this quote. Um, I'm not blanking on the sister's name right now, but one of the, one of the sisters who actually went to Michigan with us, and she she started her own uh, podcast, Side Hustle Pro. And oh yeah, um, I can't believe I'm blanking on the sister's name right now. Um, but anyways, um, 
she talked about failure being an event, not um, a character trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, your story, there are all of these quote unquote failures, but really they were just learning opportunities. Because yep. I don't know of a single person who uh, hasn't failed, right? Yeah. Who, who who goes who doesn't face adversity? And I know as black men, we get a a larger serving of adversity, and sometimes we don't want to clean our plate, but. <laughs> Don't let those failures, you know, trip you up and go ahead and clean your plate. And then there is success beyond it on the other side, especially if you're, you're focused and you have a vision of like where it is that you're trying to go and what it is that yeah. you're trying to do. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's good. It's good to hear that story. And I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing that with us so, so openly because there's been, there's, there's a lot of vulnerability to be able to share um, what that experience was like for you. And so oh, then. Right. Well, oh, quickly, ahead, sorry, so two things. Nikayla Matthews. Uh, yeah, Nikayla Matthews. I appreciate you. <laughs> I I'm so back. sorry, sis, if you're listening. I am so sorry because right, she's, 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 she's provided me with so much game over the years, too. Like, it started out where I gave her some entrepreneurial advice when she was at Michigan because I was a couple years ahead of her. But yeah. I've learned so much more from her than I ever was able to teach her. So I'm sorry, sorry, sis, for, for getting your name on air. I know, always. always we always get people's back. But two, it's like, you know, to your point about this idea of vulnerability. Um, so the work that we do now with, right, that I do every day is all about vulnerability. Like, if I have to boil it down to one word, it's about vulnerability. Mm. And, and it's about healing. And it's about, like, how do we create spaces where just people, right? Part of why the program resonates so much with so many different people is because when they walk into the circle, no one is above or below it. Um, mm. And there's this sense that like, I can actually speak my unvarnished, unpolished, ugly truth in this space, in this circle. And two things, the container can hold it, right? Mm. The container can handle what I'm about to put into it. And if it can't, the way it, the way the containers get stronger is by putting more truth in mm. and then holding that space and that confidentiality that, and, and, and to do it without judgment. And don't get me wrong, right? There's still judgment. Like as a human, I judge. As humans, we judge. That's what we do. Like the person I judge the most is myself. Right. And, and that's frankly what I'm often having to overcome is the self-judgment of not saying my truth because I may not want to deal with the consequences of saying my truth or what that might mean. But like that is what this is all about is like I can't get to your point, like growing up as a black person in America, you have very likely experienced trauma. Like oh, there's something yeah. called there's something called post traumatic slave syndrome, right? Like mm-hmm. not just PTSD, but PTSS, and all these things that we just that are part of our inheritance that we don't even realize are things that our ancestors did to survive the right the experience of chattel slavery. 
right. and that we have been passed down to us that are in our blood, that are in our existence. And one of the things that is absolutely an inheritance for black people is protection of oneself. And so the idea of being vulnerable was a life or death decision, right? A lot mm. of times for our ancestors. So yep. it is not a surprise for people of color and black people in particular to not be super open to vulnerability. I mean, a vulnerable moment, like right now, I'm just going to go ahead and step out. Probably I might regret this later, but you know, just I'm going to be present is for me growing up being vulnerable was like something that was only allowed in the house sometimes. Right, yep. being vulnerable outside the house meant you know I, I've been seeing people get you know yeah, beat same. down all the way to murder, yeah, um, by just doing the simple vulnerable thing like trusting somebody. Yeah, I'm gonna go to this party with you. I'm gonna walk home with you or whatever. So I've I've always had this uh, situation where I just it's my responsibility to be able to read the room and to read the setting and to. I need to be accountable for who I allow myself to be vulnerable with. Like that, that was my learning growing up. And I think it's still somewhat relevant. You shouldn't just be vulnerable willy nilly with anyone, but right. it is, I still have those, I have those triggers, even though my life is not what it was, you know, when I was going through adolescence in Harbor city, like my life is a lot more safe. Everything is not, life or death, even though, I mean, at certain instances, your life can be you know, put, in, in, put, in, put in danger for sure. But I still have some of those triggers where, I, where I'm in settings where very clearly, like, my, the consequence is not going to be death or being maimed or sent to the hospital. But I still have those same triggers from growing up in an environment in which being vulnerable had really high stakes and consequences. And so, right. so, so two I, things I managed, on that. <laughs> So two things on that. So one, um, so that is an absolutely adaptive response, right? Like that is, as humans, we are designed to survive. Yeah. And so I think you said it really well of like, like, you know, this is not a life and death experience, right? But our DNA, right? Like once upon a time as humans, the way our whole our neuroscience, right? The brain science works is once upon a time when I went around a bush and there was a rattlesnake, right? Or a fierce animal, that was a very life or death situation. Right. Right. And so my brain then reminds myself bush equals danger, right? Right. Be, you know, practice safety and be conservative, right? Also the adrenaline and all the things that come with like, like it's a life or death situation. Like we're not so far removed from that history as, as humans and our biology has not caught up that like email in all caps is not the same as a rattlesnake, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> right? Absolutely. Perfect, absolutely right? perfect. But like our, our biology it activates the same response, right? The same stress response protocol. Mm -hmm. And as your point, growing up in Harbor City, like going down that alley was the same as 
the the rattlesnake, right, or the or the or the wild animal. Like that was actually a life, and so it is an absolutely adaptive response for humans and and people, right, navigating that that circumstance right. to to make sure that they stay alive. And so the way that plays out is then that same young person, right, that same young Neff who's been navigating Harbor City to get to his school. And when you feel something threatening, you respond with your life-saving activities. Right. Well, that's fine in the neighborhood because that's an adaptive response. But when it's your teacher, right, coming at you, talking about, Take off your hat, right? Or some <laughs> some small, right? right I'm just, right, I'm maybe touching a nerve, right? Like, <laughs> yes, you. And are. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I respond with that same response that I had in the neighborhood that was keeping me alive. There, it becomes maladaptive in in the school setting. Absolutely. And so, like, and so then we get into this pattern of, you know, discipline. School. You know, we could get into the conversations around police, and all, we get to all these things where, like. That's a totally adaptive survival response for all humans. But like, because the circumstances and the context that unfortunately so many people have to navigate, right, are constantly getting in. And now I've got hypervigilance. Well, mm. right, these then reactions that occur are, if you take them in that lens, you go, well, that makes a ton of sense, right? Absolutely. That is actually the right thing for that human to do to stay alive. But now, and so that is kind of the work we do with our young men is like helping them. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is all about is you've got to be willing to be, I've got to build a relationship with you so like we can have trust so that you can then be vulnerable so that I can then work on your automatic responses and help right. you better assess what, what environment am I actually in and am I actually under threat? Cause if I'm not under threat, then I can maybe go with the response that isn't a, that isn't a threat response as maybe is more of an emp empathic or empathetic right. response. So, Absolutely. sorry, I know we were. No, no, that's that, my odyssey for, to Lynchburg. But yeah. you, like, you started check, you started checking in, and like, I was like, listen, this is the work we do, right? And so, like, I'm, I'm I have, it's hard to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, no, but but I think that was a perfect segue. It brought us, it brought us full circle, and it brings us back to, like, the four questions I ask everyone who comes on the show. Right. They're they're meant to be um, healing questions, not necessarily for the the guest but it's meant to be for the listener especially if you if you haven't done this work yet because like one of our things is i get i get really frustrated when people talk about black boys in the hood in particular and their behaviors because i'm mm -hmm. like what have you done to create a different reality for them because if you know the environment that they're living in and then you're still judging them they mm -hmm. were born into it they, they didn't right. create that chaos. We, we've left these babies in total chaos. And then they develop these behaviors that can be called maladaptive outside the context of the hood. Right. And one of those maladaptive behaviors is you can't take crap from anybody. Yeah. Like, not on just some ego, on some keeping yourself safe. Yeah. And so, but when you get out of, you know, that environment, that that level of aggression or that response is not necessarily the right response. So Michelle Obama, you know, had the classic quote from the 2016 DNC convention where she says, when they go low, you go high. Yeah. And so can you tell me of a time in which someone has went low 
and you chose to take the high road. And the, the yeah. fact that you took the high road, it actually turned out to be your best in your best interest. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've been thinking about that question a lot. And I mean, I think there's a ton of personal experiences, right? Somebody says something, um, um, you know, just a, the blackmail experience, right? Followed in the store, all this kind of stuff. But the, 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 for some reason, the, 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 the thing that was resonating with me is, and this will kind of tie into where we left off and hopefully kind of bring, bring the story to kind of to, to a full circle is, so I, when I was at Genworth, um, so I was, it was 05, I go down to Lynchburg, I work, uh, right, I do the two-year rotational program in finance. And I move, I make another transition to the sales desk, right? So now I'm back to being the peddler that my dad always said we were as a family. Like, and everybody in my family has been in sales at some point in some role or function. Um, and it's 2008. I'm sorry, 2009. So financial crisis is going on. It's starting to come to a head. And my organization, like I'm, I'm having, I finally hit my stride. I'm having my best year on the sales desk ever. And I met every one of my sales goals. I earned the sales incentive trip. Uh, I'm preparing for an opportunity to go out and become an external wholesaler and go make the big money out in the field. Mm. And it's January of 2000 and, um, it's January of 2009, and I get the uh, – and my company has been hit really hard because uh, mm. we did mortgage insurance. We had a counterparty risk in terms of investment portfolio, and mm. we're an insurance company while AIG is gambling with people's money, right? So mm-hmm. – uh, and I still feel pissed off about the rating agencies, but that's a different podcast altogether. <laughs> um, so I get that. You know, word is coming down that something might happen in the organization where there might be some – um, restructuring and layoffs coming and I get that message telling me to come to a meeting room and all mm. of a sudden you start going around and everybody is getting an invitation to a meeting room and you're like well, okay what is about to go down and I look I walk into the room and you know first thing you do I'm a goalie right I'm assessing the team <laughs> right, right, right 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 and I'm looking around the room and I'm like is this the kind of room of people who are going to get laid off or are they going to be asked to stay <laughs> And I was like, I couldn't quite tell. There were some people who were like, oh, he, he was not a top performer. Right. <laughs> but the other people, I'm like, ooh, are you in the room? That, that right. surprises me. I'm like, so I think I got a shot to stay. And they, and they give me the notice that like, hey, uh, we're, we're eliminating um, your position. Mm. You're, you know, and they laid off you know, the vast majority of the, of, of the team that I was on. And they, and they kept some people. And I looked around and I was like, y'all kept them? Right. You know, this person, I'm like, they didn't feel, it didn't feel fair, particularly not when I had, when I had absolutely crushed it. Yeah. Uh, and I was hot. I was hot. Uh, I'm now laid off in the middle of a, of a, right, of the Great Recession. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what do I do? Um, oh, by the way, the next day they were like, by the way, you need to come back to campus but you need to go to this other place where we're, it's kind of like all the unemployed people now have to go to this outplacement. So I have to drive the exact same route to work onto the same campus, but instead of making a right, I make a left, I go to like fired school. Right. 
And I was like, it just felt like a slap in the face. I've been more loyal, recruiting. I've done, I done everything right. Like I'm an ambassador of this organization and this is the thanks I get. That's how I'm feeling. Yep. But like, I was like, okay, I can't be that way. Um, but fortunately, like there was a, I, I, there was a guy who had been looking out for me. He'd been a mentor. He was a Michigan business uh, MBA, uh, uh, a guy named, uh, a guy named Sina who was, you know, uh, African descent. And like, he became my mentor. He had been looking out for me, but like he was, he was somebody that really helped mentor me through this really tough period. Um, and, you know, I was sitting there and I was trying to figure out what I do next. So I, I was going to become a financial advisor because uh, I still liked helping people and, you know, I had all these licenses and I wanted to like be a part of Virginia. And I had an opportunity also to go work on a political campaign for uh, a guy who was running for governor of Virginia in 2009. And I and so I went to him, and I know he had to be involved in the decision ultimately in terms of me not being retained. Um, and I was like, "Hey, I'm I, this happened. I get it. Like, I, you know, businesses do what they got to do, but I, I really need your advice on what do I do next with my career." And he was really generous and was like, "Hey, listen, I see these opportunities, and you could absolutely go be a financial advisor, but like, this seems like a one in a lifetime opportunity to go." work on this political campaign. Like oh. you can always get back on the work treadmill if that's what you want to do. Like that opportunity is not going to go anywhere, but this other opportunity seems kind of unique. And I know you've kind of got bit by the political bug, you know, in terms of like getting involved. I was a volunteer for Obama in 08, like making phone calls. He's like, I think you should, I think you should really consider this kind of being an organizer opportunity. And so I did, I took that opportunity and man, like it was, it was incredible, mm. you know, like being actually like in the political process, like not on the sidelines, not as a volunteer, but like I'm, I'm a paid person now every day I go to work and it's a seven day a week job. I've never worked that hard in my life right. um, for such, for such little money. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. I don't think I've ever done either. Right. <laughs> Got paid that little and worked that hard and they were both combined. Right. Um, but man, I, it was one of those, it was just like, it was, it was one of those moments that began to really set me, to give me the courage to zig when others are zagging, to take a path less traveled, but mm -hmm. to really like trust my instincts and follow that ultimately gave me the confidence when I was leaving Michigan to trust my instincts and go kind of follow this other path, right? Where right. everybody so, else was going. So this guy who was a part of you being laid off was also the... And so that could have been a, a triggering moment. You could have burnt that. You could have burnt that bridge. I could have gone in there a, and right, burnt the whole up, thing down. Right, right, right. Which you know I've joked about before. I've I've burned some bridges and some I've detonated. <laughs> I, I think I've matured at this point to to not do either. But you know, um, but he ended up helping point you in a direction that ended up being super beneficial, not just to your immediate next job, but to your long term career. Right, and ultimately wrote my recommendation letter right when I went to go to business school. You know, a couple years later. That's 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 dope. Um, so if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would it be? Um, I, I think the word is courage. Mm. Um. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how do you how do you define courage? Because I I wouldn't say that I'm a devo, devotee, but I've read 
um, some Brene Brown. I watch some of her yeah. videos, and I kind of come from that school of defining courage. How would you define courage? So, so one of the things we haven't talked about here is like I'm I'm also a person of of right great faith, and so you know the the Bible talks a lot about. Um, uh, I think it was to Joshua when he was kind of crossing the river Jordan, this idea of be bold and courageous. Right. Um, and, and courage is also about obedience for me too. Um, it's about, I, I don't, <laughs> I think it goes back to like this, this mindset as a goalkeeper, like of, at a moment, there's a moment when it comes and like you gotta you gotta go out there and you gotta be willing to put your body you gotta be put something at risk put your body at risk to go to go get it. Um, and like I, part of my identity now and my reputation is that people expect me like I'm I'm a I say I'm a seer of elephants and a sayer of things, mm-hmm. right? Like if there's an elephant in the room. You know, as a as a person who's all about inclusion, right, and inclusivity, I want to bring invite the elephant into the room, you know, to the conversation, where right. everyone else is like seeing the elephant, but no one's willing to say like there's a massive elephant sitting in the room. Like right. that's just that's who I am, and so I'm going to see the elephant. I'm going to say the thing, even right. if it's uncomfortable, even if it's awkward, even if it's risky for me personally. It's also understanding my own male privilege. Like although I am a, a black man, and so there is an element of like oppression. There's also yeah. an element like this intersectionality. Like I recognize that I do have male privilege at times that allows me to say things that maybe my, my female colleague can't say. Right. Um, and so like, and also just the courage to live differently, the courage to like, um, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't vibe with everybody. Like I'm not going to be, I'm not, not everyone's going to like me. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm, I've gotten more okay with that. And it's just this courage to like, to do what I know is right, to do what, like, I feel like I've got God given gifts and talents and now even probably more elements of discernment and, and and like, I can, I just sense something. And like, like this piece we were doing before about, you know, your journey, uh, what you were talking about vulnerability, like, I'm just going to follow my instincts and I'm going to, and I'm going to. I'm going to have the courage to speak my truth. Man, that is, that is a bar and a half. Like it was, it was such a, it was somewhere in my thirties, but it was so damn freeing when I got to the place of when I, I know what I'm standing for. And if I know that I'm standing on right and I'm right with God, I ain't got to like you and you ain't got to like me. Right. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, I love people. I'm a massive extrovert. But you just can't love everyone. And you and I, I like to try and, you know, build this like win-win situation and try and build community and bring as many people in and not try and like push people out in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's got to a point where it's like, look, this is kind of what it is. And, and it doesn't have to be that you are a bad person or that I'm a bad person. Like we're just not meant to vibe. And that's cool. Yeah. And that that was that was really free. Um when when I when I got to that point, um, but but, Neff, oh, I think, but I think that there's another piece for me. It's like it's courage, but it's courage also like from a place of like also a place of faith, which also means like, and this this is not going to probably be popular to say, right? So, um, like I still have 
as a Christian, like I still have deep love for, and like I pray, right, for our current president. I pray for those who are doing the oppressing. Like there's an element of human, like because of, like because I've navigated these different spaces, like I can, I, there's, my, there's ability for me to understand probably where someone's coming from. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I'm not like, I don't like you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you off the hook and not hold you accountable, but I'm also not going to write you off as a human being because like that, that goes against my core fundamental beliefs of like, we're all imperfect. Right. And you, you might've been born into white privilege and have, unfortunately for some reason you have no awareness of it, right. Which is hard to believe, but, like, let me, let me take you at your word and say, like, I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I don't understand it. Um, I'm having an awakening moment right now. And I go, okay, <laughs> this is very difficult yeah. for me as a person to like, like, this is like, okay, there's a, like, I'm offended personally, right? Like, the, yeah. this is, you have not cared about my lived experience and like what my existence as a black person enough to get it. But you know what? Like once upon a time, I also didn't understand, right? So if I'm really mm -hmm. honest, and I'm able to go to that human element and say, like, okay, you are you are a kindergartner, right, on this journey, and it's a it's ridiculous that you are, but can I can I meet you where you are, just like I meet right. the young meet the young men in our program, right, who have had lots of concentrated disadvantage that they've had to navigate, and I'm meeting them without judgment, and yeah. so like it is it is it takes a lot of personal courage. To say to say that publicly, right, or be willing to say that, um, yeah, and and I I I I respect it and and don't even <laughs> debate it. But you can hear my voice, and you know me. I think one of the things I struggle with, I think some people are dropouts on that journey. Oh, right? sure. Like, like they they're intentionally not trying to get it and don't care, and they like, you know, they're like, I don't want to progress, and I don't want to treat black people, women, you know. Um, people from the LGBTQ community, immigrants, people of other faith backgrounds, whatever. I don't want to treat them equally. And I'm opting out of this journey of progress. I do. And, and I don't, I've, I've not grown to a place <laughs> in my faith to extend my grace to those people who drop out on that journey. But now, listen, I, I, I don't say that I'm not trying to debate you. Though. I hear you. you but you're but just, listen, but I'm still the Maya Angelou Oprah, right? Which is when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time, right? Or the George Bush, <laughs> fool yeah. me once, shame on you. I won't. I won't get fooled again, right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like I'm, I'm, I, this is not like Pollyannic. This is like yeah. there's a. I'm going to give you an opportunity if to to say like as a person of of I'm going to give you the opportunity to live up to what you say you are i'm not going to yeah. waste my time like i'm not going to go carry you on your own journey gotcha but yeah, okay if, if, but if you come to me and say hey listen i'm serious i'm honest i don't get this but i want to all right you got a shot yep and then give you that, i'm gonna give you a fair agreement. shake right yeah. but i'm not this ain't gonna be a i'm not captain save anybody right like that's right. that's also <laughs> not who i am yeah, <laughs> represent. All right, uh, two, two more, two more quick All right. questions. Sorry, that was a, I took that question no. and, and went down a rabbit hole with it. No, that was good, man. I'm, this this is all good. This is all good stuff. Um, your personal definition of success it does yeah. not. It doesn't need to be something that everyone should use as yep. their definition. But what is it that you got? You use to guide your life? 
yeah, well, I think hopefully that's clear from the last question that I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't try to march by anybody else's drum. Um, I think success for me is um, like I certainly want to make money and be able to provide for my family. Like that's a model that's been shown to me from from certainly from my father and my mother. Um, I think for me at this point, what what success is all about is um, I think it's like Carol Dweck. Uh, I'm very much it's about it's about a like a growth mindset. Mm. It's it's about um, She has a simple, oh, it, it's when you, if you add ing to any statement, it changes, it changes it from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset orientation. Right. And so like, well, that's just the way I was raised, which is a classic refrain. I loved it, right? People love to say, it's like, okay, yes, that was the way you are raised. How do you want to show up today? How are you living today? Who are you becoming right. today? And right. my fundamental belief is the day I stop growing is the day I start dying. Right. Um, and so my wife and I have this very, and we did not talk about my wife at all, but she is dope as uh, I'll get out. Um, right. Is like, like at the core of our like union is this idea of we're going to be people who are, who are on the grow. Um, mm, which is a, which, which is a term I'm stealing from the church in Richmond I used to be a part of, uh, St. Paul's Baptist. It's like a church with people on the grow, and that just always resonated with me so much. And so, like mm -hmm. success for me is now it's no longer like a one, three, five year plan. Although I do kind of lay those things out, I have some vision of stuff I want to accomplish. But like it's the daily uh, journey of like, am I growing? Am I yep. open? To, and more importantly, am I just am I open to growth? which is like the first mental shift of like, I'm open to being challenged. I'm open to growing. I'm open to having my idea of success redefined right tomorrow. Um, yep. So I, I think that, that's really the thing for me. It's about, it's all about growth. Yep. I, I always say, I'd say uh, thriving, you know, it's not a destination. Like it's a yep. trajectory, right? It's like, where, where are you getting better? And sometimes like getting better is like, things that you're working on, you're getting better from a really broken or dysfunctional place. And so, yeah. but it's still, it's still progress. You know what I mean? Like if you're trying yep. to get, if you're trying to get from point A to point B and along that journey, there's some dark stormy days, you're still progressing towards point B. There's just a little thunderstorm that comes along the way. So it's about a trajectory, mm -hmm. which I think is analogous to growing and being on the grow. Um, and then, so the, the last question I have for you uh, today before we let you get out of here is there's a lot of hell that we catch being black men. Yeah. Um, but what do you love the most about being a black man? Man. Um, I, I just, uh, this is a very biased opinion, but I don't think any group has more fun when they're together, mm. right, than black men. Uh, I mean, maybe black women, but like black <laughs> men, like yeah. when like when we really get together and when we really um, give each other permission yeah. to just like be, like I love, like I love running the dozens 
with other black men like this constant back and forth of like um this good natured you know it can quickly tip over to being something more sinister right like right because there's lots right. of insecurity imposter syndrome stuff that plays out but like when we can just be like generative and building and like going at each other like a good cypher like i love watching a good freestyle battle um like rhythm and flow right is the kind of like that kind of energy when black yeah. men get together and are just like at one moment i can be absolutely cracking on like your you know your bald head or <laughs> your sneakers or something about something very superficial and materialistic and at the next moment, like I can be totally with you, bro, on something real heavy and yep. hard and uh, and this kind of shared experience of struggle and sacrifice and pain uh, and that ability to move seamlessly between like we can party. Right. Like we can mm -hmm. crack and we can support and heal together. And like I just that is to me the. I don't see, like when I'm around um, folks of other backgrounds like that is not just a natural instinctive inclination that yeah. I, I see in, in other cultures that is so totally clear uh, and that and that and that stretches across the diaspora right like like I've seen that happen with brothers from Brazil and Africa yep. and the Caribbean like it doesn't matter because there's still this like indigenous tribal element to just who we are as um, men of African descent, right? That we call black here in the U.S. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would, I would think, I look at it through this particular perspective. There's a spectrum to our to our lived existence that, no matter where we move, very few people understand the full spectrum of <laughs> that existence. Except, you know, I think I think sisters oftentimes can they can see it, they can get it. There, yeah. there are some there are some outer reaches of just like. The, the male part, they're like, I, I don't get because it it's a very unique thing, you know, having that Y chromosome and some of the mentalities that it brings about. But uh, I think, you know, there's a there's a particular spectrum of experiences that we have and everywhere in which we go. People only understand a little bit of it. Right. And then when we all come together, especially when it's like good people where it doesn't go down as toxic masculinity approach where right. it becomes imposter syndrome, whatever, where it's like, it's just true love and support and community. Then, yeah, it's like you get to be all of yourself. Like it's totally okay to talk about, you know, the most nerdy geeky <laughs> topic. And then, and in the next moment, you know, you're, 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 you're getting on somebody's hairline or you're talking about, right. you know, their sneaker game being insufficient or, whatever it may be. And um, it's our entire lived experience and is accepted and understood, which is basically something that doesn't happen anywhere else in society. Right. I, I, I think I sum it up in like the black barbershop experience and the black man head nod that exists in society. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yep. Like there's just, there's a connection that like, I don't know you, you don't know me, but like, but we do know each other, right? We know exactly. we know our shared lived experience. And something about like that black barbershop of just being like, yo, who knows what 
you have to be ready for any range of philosophical and super <laughs> superficial topics to be discussed in the in, in the in the in the span of like seven minutes in a in a black barbershop, right? Like that. Yeah. No I, doubt. Like I don't ever want to give that up. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, yo, my man, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, hop on Bootstraps and to share your story so openly. Um, I appreciate you having taken the time over the years to make fun of me from time to time. Um, and uh, yeah, man, I just wish you... still you... a big homie. <laughs> I appreciate it. He's still a little big homie. Um, yeah, man. All right, this man, I'll great. talk to you soon. All right, yep. brother. Peace. Peace.